Hey, this is Matthew Krauss, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today is my interview with pro drummer William Ellis. For almost six years, William has been the drummer with Montgomery Gentry. William breaks it down for us. He gives us an idea what it's like to tour during most of the year and then juggle many other things that are going on with him, whether it's doing sessions, working with other artists. He talks about creative and musical projects that he's been involved with. William also has some cool insight on how he got into drums and drumming and the music that he listened to when he was young, growing up, some of the hard rock stuff, and then discovering jazz in college and falling in love with great artists like Miles Davis and how that has shaped his playing, his listening, and how all that has added up to making him the player that he is. As always, go to workingdrummer.net to see pictures, find out more information about this and other podcasts we've done. You can find us on Twitter at working underscore drummer. Instagram, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash working drummer. We, of course, have a YouTube page where you can find us, where we're going to be posting more videos and individual interviews leading up to the Nashville Drummers Jam, which is coming up December 14th at the Exit Inn in Nashville. We have our iTunes page. You can go there. You can subscribe. We'll send you a new episode every week as they come out. So here is William Ellis. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I'm thrilled to be here and honored to be asked to be here. Um, what is... What's going on? What you doing? Ah, well, right now, I have, the past two weeks, I've had two weeks off from Montgomery Gentry. We've worked very extensively over the summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, They typically do that. They typically work uh, from May to October, fairly heavy, and the other six months is ramp. you know, the back end of the year is ramping down, the front end of the year is ramping up to that. So... It gives me opportunities to balance uh, playing live and doing session work here in town. And uh, at the moment, it's been a well-needed two weeks off because of the extensive work Montgomery Gentry has done this summer. And I've been able to fill my calendar and work with some close friends and associates that I've known for a while by being in in town for a while and play some sessions yeah now uh do you know what your schedule is going to be like uh at the beginning of the year does it change to how does that every year is different um case in point one year in january i went to uh, south korea and okinawa and and with montgomery gentry with montgomery gentry and did the uso tour thing and that was a eye-opening experience i've never been to either one of those places and that was a lot of fun and then some Januarys and Februarys we we might play four shows that month I mean it's just every year it seems it's a little bit different on the front end the front end and the back end and since I've been with these guys they've never done per se uh, a a package tour with another artist or a group or a duo or anything of that nature um They've done very well with with their own career, being being out sixteen years and having amazing. having a lot of success when um, uh, their first ten years of their existence, and that has really sustained them to be able to go out and play a ninety minute show and play all hits. Right, right. It's, it's the only artist I've ever worked with 
and you can do a 90 minute show and you're hit basically hit. playing hits That's you know right. that they've yeah. had so they've had a lot of success and each year is typically different as far as the booking and go, how it goes but i've been to some cool places with them i've been to mexico like i said uh south korea okinawa i've been to australia oh, been wow. to canada yeah. you know i've been all across the u.s and even down to key west or the bahamas and mm -hmm. things of that nature so i mean it does provide some perks playing with them sure. because of um what they what they do you know and they they like to tour uh they're both family oriented and they both okay. have families and typically uh that's why we tour the way we do every year i say is different but typically it's different in the front and the back half of the years because may to october they're going to work that's fair and festival season that's when a lot right. of the summer touring and the like i said the country jam or uh, you know just hodak festival or whatever it may yeah, be yeah, you know yeah. and and that type of schedule seems to be conducive to a country act most nashville groups they're busy during like you say may to october tends to be the trend it is and it's almost like a a, a, a capsule of time that is symbolic of the way musicians live and the way we earn money it can be very seasonal and you have to plan for those off months. And if you work with an artist that has been as successful as Montgomery Gentry, they probably have their season booked. That's, I guess that was my initial question. Like, do you know the schedule where you can look at your year and somebody says, hey, Will, I want to I use you on this record. I want to do some sessions. What's your year look like? Oh, I can tell you six months out, I've got the back half of October wide open. Let's book sessions there. Is that the case with these guys? Uh, yes and no. It's a great question, by the way. Um, once again, each year is different. Uh, what I've noticed with working with them is there will be some solid dates on the books. Like yeah. if we started January 2016, hypothetically, we can talk. January, I look at the calendar. Um there could be some solid dates on the books already, but there could be some holes, and those holes are basically being discussed amongst, I'm presuming their management and booking agent to fill those holes for them yeah. in the summertime, especially. They're not consulting you? No, no, <laughs> never, never. I just play drums, man. <laughs> but... There are some solid dates usually on the books, and they could be as far out as four to six months. Rarely in January will I see dates for November and December. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ten to 12 months away, no. It's, that's untypical, but there have been some that do show up that yeah. late. Sure. And what happens typically is the ramp-up begins January to May, and dates will get added, and then by the time you get to May... Your summer's full. Right. I've had one summer weekend off since May. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I've. It was funny. I told my family. I was talking to a nephew, one of my nephews, the other day. I said, "People don't understand a musician's life very well because we typically work when everybody else is off." Oh, I know. 
We yeah. typically have the opposite schedule yeah. of the typical nine to five, yeah. 40 to 50 hour, 60 hour work week. The, uh, the only person that knows a musician's life better than a musician is probably my wife. I would she agree knows, with that. We, yeah, yeah. She knows your schedule inside and out. She says she sees her friends hanging with their spouses during the weekend, during the quote unquote off hours. And she's by herself because those off hours, like you say, is the time when entertainers are, that's when we're doing our jobs. That's when we're doing our jobs for everybody else to enjoy themselves or escape from their weekly job or yep. what may be going on in their life exactly. at the time. So. Exactly. Are there any last minute gigs that come through with those guys? That has happened maybe two or three times in five okay. and a half to six years with that's them. That's amazing. How and I've been you... I've been there almost six years. I joined February 2010. Okay. And um, interesting process. I had no idea they were even auditioning. And another drummer friend of mine called me, and he had an audition spot. And he asked me what I was doing. I told him what I was doing, and he said, would you be interested? I said, why not? Yeah. And he's like, well, I'll call the music director and let him know that you're going to take my place. I'm going to stay with the artist I'm with. And that's why it's very important to meet other players in town on your same instrument and, and as well on different instruments. Right. Meet bass players, meet keyboard players, yeah. meet guitar players, meet singers. Now that seems like horn the, players. That seems like the obvious thing. Mm -hmm. But what you're talking about is a relationship with a drummer that turned into an audition that turned into and I a have, six year gig. I have known that drummer. I moved to town in nineteen ninety five. Okay. I've been here twenty years. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't realize that. You moved here when you were five. Yeah, you're very kind. <laughs> <laughs> you're very kind. I moved here in 95, and I had no one. I didn't write letters. I didn't make phone calls. I came here cold. Mm -hmm. And what prompted that decision was I had finished college a year prior, and I was in Knoxville playing gigs around there trying to decide where I wanted to move. Yeah. Is it New York? Is it LA? Is it Nashville? Mm -hmm. I grew up in East Tennessee. I was born in Johnson City, and I grew up in a small town called Elizabethan. Great musicians everywhere, primarily in the bluegrass sure. idiom genre mm -hmm. music, because ETSU has a really good bluegrass school, and they have a great percussion program too. Randy Sanderbeck, who taught Kevin Murphy, is at ETSU. So okay. if anybody's in the Northeast, East Tennessee area and wants to find a drum teacher, I highly recommend Randy Sanderbeck. Randy Sanderbeck. Yes, okay. highly. Mm -hmm. I was able to take lessons with him when I was in high school, and I played all-state band, and he was my instructor, and I ended up taking drum set lessons from him when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, and he really opened up a lot of the possibilities of uh, independence. Mm. Um, he has certain systems a la Gary Chester's New Breed book oh, where yeah. you'll have, um, you know, you'll have a foot ostinato or you'll read between the bass and the snare line and you'll do an ostinato with the right hand. It might be eighth notes and you might play two and four on the hi-hat or you might play quarters. You might play upbeat eighth notes or then you might just play eighth notes and playing all these patterns and reading and it gets you thinking about 
more of what you're reading and the other things go on automatic pilot. Like your right hand and your left foot would kind of be on the automatic pilot thing. And then you're reading uh-huh. the lines that between the bass and the snare. And that's really what your focus is on. Because to me, independence is interdependence. They all work together. Right. You right. know, it's it's kind of a misnomer name when it says independence. It's great to have that independence and that freedom to play that rhythm with a certain limb, a la left foot or left hand or right, right hand, but right foot. But they all have to be complementary. But to... they all have to fit into this this groove that you're creating, yes. whether it's a jazz groove, Excellent. Latin groove, rock groove, metal yes. groove, what, what have you. It all has to work cohesively. Mm-hmm. So to mm-hmm. me... Independence might be sort of a misnomer tag to it, but to me it means interdependence. You have to make this limb work with the other limbs to make this thing work as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we concentrated on, and that's around the same time I started playing clubs as a kid. Um, How old were you when you were taking these lessons when you were working? And were you working out of the New Breed book? um, Not at that time. Uh, I started playing drums. When I was five, I fell in love with rock music. I had an older brother who had friends who had great record collections in my neighborhood and uh, grew up in a middle-class area, didn't grow up with a lot of wealth, but I didn't grow up poor. But I would basically, once I saw the Kiss Alive album, <laughs> yeah, I was enamored by it. I was like, cartoon characters that are rock stars that play hard rock music. Right. What better thing to me? So... I borrowed Kiss Records, I borrowed Aerosmith, I borrowed ACDC, I borrowed Boston. All the album-oriented rock FM radio bands of the 70s, of yeah, the time, totally. that, were, that were happening. And I would try to mimic what the drummers were doing on those records without prior lessons and just using my ears and using what limited technique I had because it was very limited and trying to figure out drum parts at a very young age. And I'd just play over and over. If there was one song I really liked, I would just, and I say I didn't have that much of a struggle with it, but I would, once I get the part down, I'd say, well, why, why did they play that? Mm-hmm. Why did they put that feel where they mm-hmm. put it? Mm-hmm. Was it to set up a section? Mm-hmm. Was it to, um, or not play a feel? Mm-hmm. You know, to make the the flow just keep constant and not disrupt it with a feel. Why did they do certain mm-hmm. things? So I started analyzing players this is before you took lessons. Yeah, and I was I was trying to figure it out because my brother played bass and he played piano and oh. he played uh, trombone. My grandfather was a gospel jazz piano player. Oh, wow. And my mom played all state, all state French horn, played piano. I have an aunt that plays piano. It was just there. And an uncle that got his master's in music. So it was just kind of there. Although in my family, it wasn't forced for me to play an instrument. I gravitated towards that. Do you feel like that played an important role in the way you approach drums now? Very much so. Yeah. Because at that time point, in my life, I was between five and nine. I didn't take any lessons. Yeah. And I would, my elementary school was four blocks away from my home, small town, 13,000 people. When that 2.30 afternoon bell rang, I ran home. Yeah. Four blocks to play because my mom was at work. Yeah. 
And when mom was at work, I could get a lot of practicing in. Yeah. When she came home, she's working 40, 50 hours a week. Not that she wasn't supportive of my music and drumming. She was 150% supportive. Right. But there were times, as I've learned, as I've gotten older and become an, an adult, that when you've had a long day, silence sometimes is best. <laughs> I didn't get that as a hyper five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old. I was, I was playing sports. I was playing music. I was playing with my friends outside, you know, yeah, whether it's baseball, football. I was constantly going. Yeah. And I had so much energy as a kid. I still do. It's kind of subdued now. But, but as a kid, I, I was trying everything. And sure. mom, mom allowed that. And yeah. that was very good. And that was, it made me figure out what path is that I enjoy and what I feel I can do well yeah. at. And from five to nine, playing to records almost every day after school. And I didn't have an elaborate drum set. I had a kick drum, I had a snare drum, and I had a rack tom. I didn't even have cymbals. Wow. I was playing the rims as cymbals because my mom at the time, she bought me a $30 drum set. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was, he's so young, let's see if he will actually take hold of this and do it for the long haul. At least go through high school band uh-huh. and play. Right. But she didn't want to buy an elaborate kit in the beginning, and six months later, it's being sold. Right. And so she really kind of forced me to earn it. And it was a good thing because I showed her I wanted to do it. Yeah. And that's when it, she didn't buy me a, a, a nice kit until I was 12. So seven years later. Wow. So I got a hi-hat when I was nine. Okay. Yeah. And that was the biggest thing in my life for, yeah. for Christmas. Getting a hi-hat and being able to play cymbals. Because I've been hitting metal rims simulating the cymbals yes. trying to figure out drum parts. Wow. So that's, that's what I would do. Yeah, yeah. And so as a kid, I had to enjoy it because I didn't have all the sound palettes as the other drummers. Yeah. And I, I would sit down, and even though I'm hitting a rim and it's just going tank, 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 mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out the rod cymbal pattern. Why is it going ding, 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 You know, why is he doing that? You know, is that automatic pilot stuff or is that his style? Is that his way he approaches things? And that came later. But as a kid, I was trying to figure out the patterns and be able to play them because I didn't have the technique. Around the time I was nine years old, I, I was got my hi-hat, and uh, I was telling Mom that I think it's time that I start taking some lessons mm-hmm. and um, to get some... Um, technique under my my hands and my feet and just have somebody analyze watch me play and give me some good pointers and in town there was um a good friend of my brother's his name was mark little he played in a couple of bands around that area and he came from a family of musicians his older brother taught guitar class at our high school and played great guitar his middle brother was a great keyboard player and they ended up having a band together later on but when i first met him he was playing in a different band from his brothers and um i just was totally uh, taken aback by somebody in my hometown that played as well as he did 
and I wanted to get to know him and take lessons from him, being okay. as young as I was. And since my brother knew him and being in the high school band together, it was an easy connection. Was he a, was he a teacher or um, was he just a player? He was a player and he would teach a few lessons on the side. And he had this huge octoplus Ludwig drum kit that he would play. The band he was in at the time was called Generock, and they were playing covers. Mm-hmm. And he would show up and he would play the 1976 red, white, and blue triple striped octoplus Ludwig kit. Oh, it, it's, it's amazing. You know, eight yeah. toms, one floor, two kick, and a snare. And uh, I was just rock star. I thought, hey, he's a rock star. You know, I got to yeah. get to know this guy. I got to get yeah. to. Yeah. get to hang with him and 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 hopefully he'll take me under his wing and um so my brother made the connection i started taking lessons from him and i remember taking my first lesson i, I walked in and i i'd been hearing molly hatchets mm-hmm. flirting with disaster mm-hmm. and I was, I was trying to figure out you know what's sticking and it's all open-handed what sticking is he starting with left or right because if i start this way i can't do it if i start this way i can do it but i still can't execute it very well so I I went to him with certain songs in mind, and I would bring in a song, and he would say, okay, this is how the drum part goes. Mm-hmm. And he would sit down, and he'd play it, because he had the technique, he could do it. Yeah. And we would play on an old Rogers White Marine Pearl kit, and it was a vintage kit from like the 60s that he had in his garage. It wouldn't be the big Octoplus, because yeah. that was packed up. Sure. But it, it, it was so fun to go and spend Saturday mornings with him, because he's the guy that opened the door for me to um, learn how to do roughs with my kick drum, fast doubles, mm-hmm. you know, you know, real fast double kicks. When we're stuff. done, will you show me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> he was the guy, man. He he had the bottom thing down. He had the real fast double thing down. And it, it for him, my technique has changed a lot since then. But for him, it was sort of the Picaro kind of thing. It was just, you know, you slide up the pedal. Yeah. You get that thing, and you, you just slide up, and you get that double by sliding your foot up the right, pedal. Right. I don't do it that way anymore, but in in the beginning, that's how I learned. And he was really, really good at that. But he opened the door to so many great drummers that I became fond of, like Tommy Aldridge mm-hmm. and Neil Peart and Steve Smith mm-hmm. and drummers yeah. of that kind of caliber that I – at the time, you know, I was just listening to FM, AOR, rock stuff and learning about different drummers as I went. Obviously, Neil and Tommy. And, and, and you play a double bass kit now, I don't you? Do, um, I do. Setup-wise, it's changed this year. Okay. But MG, really, Eddie likes the look of a double bass kit. Yeah. And although their music doesn't require me to use it a lot, mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain instances in the show that I'll use them, uh, a double kick or a double pedal on a single kick drum where I'll do some some crazy stuff at the end, trash can innings or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But by no means am I a double bass king and and i've just seen the pictures and i didn't want to jump too far ahead but i just you're 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 talking about and i mean steve smith drummer's known for so much more than journey exactly at the same time when we think back of that time in popularity with journey in the early 80s that huge sonar kit that oh yeah the wine red one that he had on the escape tour exactly and the toms were like 
12 by 12, 13 by 13, 14 by 14, 15 yeah. by 15. They were all square and they were and, huge. And, and, and that, is a, that is a small bit of time in his career that and most of his career has been jet. My point is, is that you're you're talking about, especially the time in these formative years, mm-hmm. Tommy Aldridge, Neil, Steve Smith, I mean, huge drum sets. So that's what made me think. Yeah, of, huge of drum sets. And the Nashville thing has kind of gone that way over it the is, last yeah. seven to ten years. Even Keo Stroud's playing a huge kit. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> Keo, usually see him on a four-piece. Right, You know, right. see him on a Ringo kit. Yeah. And sometimes not even a crash... An extra crash, it's a ride and a crash and a half. I know, I know. And it's he gets great. so much sound out of that stuff. It's it's yeah. crazy. But yeah. but for me it was um talk a I'll talk a little bit about that. When I got the gig and I knew that Eddie really enjoyed a double bass kick, I was not opposed to that. Because as a kid I'd sat down and I had an extra kick drum once I got my first nice drum set at twelve. A couple of years later mom bought me an extra kick drum. It wasn't the same series. It looked the same, but it wasn't the same series. But it gave me the opportunity to practice double bass grooves. Yeah. So in high school, I spent a lot of time playing the Aussie records like Tommy Aldridge or Pat Traver records and, and, and Neil Peart stuff, trying to figure out what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I experimented a lot with double bass when I was a teenager because I loved hard rock. Yeah. I really loved hard rock, and that was the flavor of the the time period. Sure. That was in the '80s, For sure. and you know there was a lot of glam hair metal going on, but mm-hmm. there was also a lot of good hard rock and roll coming in from the '70s and '80s. Van Halen, Pat Travers, yeah. Ozzy Osbourne, you know, coming out of Black Sabbath and and things of that nature, and and so I I was kind of into that that scene, that rock scene, because it kind of carried over from what I liked in the '70s, which was you know, ACDC and Aerosmith. And so that kind of just carried into that. And as I got into uh, my fifth grade year of band, I had an excellent junior high uh, band instructor. His name is Rick Simmerly. He's a great trombone player, probably one of the best in the world. Wow. He played with Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. Uh, he, he did a lot of traveling. He did not like the traveling out of the suitcase thing. He mm-hmm. got a music education degree, and he came home. That's where he grew up. And I was fortunate enough to study with him. And during that time period, was between sixth and eighth grade, I started getting bits and pieces of other musical styles through him, um, a la pop pop people, Elton John, Billy Joel, people that wrote great songs and yeah. and and was not just about drums, it was more music. And it and people like um who else was he turned me on to Weather Report. Oh yeah. You know, I had never heard Weather Report. My or brother was starting to, Yeah, he was my brother was starting to get into fusion. He was six years older than me in school. He was playing in the high school jazz band. He was learning Weather Report. He was a huge fan of Rush, by the way. Okay. He had the same kind of Rickenbacker that oh, Geddy cool. Lee had, yeah. the black and white Rickenbacker. He had one of those. And um but uh it was around the junior high era that I started being introduced to other um, musical palettes and styles other than the MTV and the radio stuff I was seeing. And that was coming through mentors. That was coming through teachers. And although I'd heard Billy Joel and Elton John in the 70s on the radio. Oh, you can't not, but... I know. It wasn't my cup of tea, so I started gravitating 
opening my mind to get out of the hard rock stuff so much. So how, what, what age? I was probably 12, 13, 14. Still pretty young, man. Yeah. To be opening, opening your mind. Right. And I was hearing a lot of funk and R and B because I went to the skate rink all the time as a kid. (laughs) And I was hearing a lot of Prince, um, Africa Bambata. How has the skating rink not come up? Until this interview, I don't know <laughs> because I don't all know. of us have done that. All I mean, of us spent on. time at the skating rink. <laughs> right. going out. That was Looking the for thing back in the day. Found. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but but through that hangout and that situation, I heard a whole different realm of music as well yeah. that I was unaccustomed to being popular within my household, which was R and B, uh, funk music, Parliament. Um, Prince, like I said, uh, African Bambata, um, just all these, uh, Morris Day in the Time, hearing all these kind of grooves and different, uh, Michael Jackson, the Jackson, mm-hmm. shake your body down to the ground, hearing mm-hmm. things like that and going, wow, there's there's more to music than just the hard rock. And my mom loved country and pop music, but I, I was like, there's just so much other stuff out there totally. that I'm unaware of that I need to investigate i need to listen to and and try to cop what, a, what a, an amazing time in, in life to like discover not know not knowing that there was so much out there that we mm-hmm. all went through that and you're like wait a minute there's more to it oh my gosh there's so much great stuff out here that, i love that in high school i started playing clubs at 15 years old the tennis and one of the assistant football coaches was a lead singer and a good friend of mine was a great guitar player and another good friend of mine was a great keyboard player and they asked me to join and start playing uh weekend gigs five nights a week and in in like five wacket five nights a week residencies in holiday inn sheraton's and places like that okay so i started getting club experience very young 15 years old started playing like wow pop r&b Top forty rock, mm-hmm. just whatever the covers of the day were, and sure. whatever we we would do to please the audience, mm-hmm. and that was my introduction to playing clubs. It would be funny. I'd show up at some club doors, and the security guard say, "You're not coming in here tonight. You're way too young." I said, "I have to come in there. There's my drum set. I'm actually the drummer and part of the entertainment." <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. <laughs> they would just kind of get what? <laughs> you didn't look at okay, me. Okay, but I'm keeping an eye on you, buddy. Exactly. So right. the lead singer was my guardian. He would go in and he'd keep his eye on on yeah. me and make sure I wasn't doing you know yeah. underage stuff, drinking, yeah. whatever. But um, but that was my introduction, and that was valuable experience. Could, can I ask you, was that a, a, ever a problem? I mean, I mean, did you did they have to keep an eye on you, or were you like, no, I'm just I'm here to play? And, but I mean, because there's all those that temptation. You're around that stuff. It was an interesting time. I I didn't have the typical um, uh, two-parent family in high school. What I mean by that is my mom remarried and moved to Augusta, Georgia when I was 14. And I went with her for a while. Mm -hmm. But I found out quickly that their band program was not up to par as the one I had left. Interesting. And my high school drum instructor, Skip, I wanted to study with him. My brother was back home, and he was finishing his last two years of college at ETSU, 
Okay. And my mom asked him, will you be William's guardian? He wants to come back and go to high school in his hometown. Sure. And he said, yeah, but if he messes up, he's coming back to be with you. Yeah. Because I'm not going to deal with all the drama, and I'm not going to raise— Because he was— That's a very mature decision at that age. Yeah. Because, but your focus was already intact at that age, knowing what you wanted to do, what you wanted to learn. And who I wanted to study with, because I moved to another area. That's, and maybe I didn't meet the right teacher down there. Maybe yeah, I didn't know still, who it was. I wasn't there very long. You know, maybe same, three or four months. Tops. But regardless of that, I mean, that, that's that's pretty amazing, though. That I mean, I I always say that kids start college at eighteen, nineteen years old, and they're expected to know what major to choose. And I don't think that that's got to be such a difficult decision for those who that haven't found their way or their vocation. But at that age, that's pretty amazing. I, I mean, knew it kind of very young. I kind of knew at seven yeah. or eight years old what I wanted wow. to do. So going back to my question, when you were in these clubs at that age, you had to be responsible because you didn't want to mess up that opportunity that your mom had allowed you uh, exactly. to, to be where you were. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And the high school band was changing. We had just gotten a new band director. It was getting better. And Skip was there, and I was telling her, I want to come back. And then I came back, played the you know freshman, sophomore year. Around my sophomore year, I started playing clubs. And from there, I started getting valuable experience. I auditioned for All-State Band, met Randy Sanderbeck. Okay. Found out what an awesome teacher and player he was, mm -hmm. and a person. And I wanted to study with him, and we connected after the All-State stuff. And I said, man, I want to take drum set. And he he kind of wanted me to take everything because I think he was looking at me being one of his future students at ETSU. And at the time, I didn't know where I was going to go to school. You know, I didn't know, but I wanted to take full advantage of someone in my area that was very proficient in what I wanted to learn, another yeah. mentor, you know. Right. So I gravitated towards him, and I took drum set lessons, and he really helped my my independence or interdependence helped my touch because I was heavy-handed from mm -hmm. playing a lot of rock and drum core and and drum core kind of things, um, marching band in high school. Um, but around that same time, I was playing a lot of clubs and starting starting to get gain valuable experience of what a working musician was like. Yeah, yeah. And that was totally foreign to me until that point. And to see that, hey, you have to go in, you have to set up your own gear, you have to play four hours, you mm -hmm. might be there five days a week, but guess what? Afterwards, you have to tear down the lights, you have to tear down the PA, you have to pack yeah. that up, you have to drive home. You know, you, it's all these things that, it's not just show up and play drums and that's it. Right. There's all these other yeah. parts to it. And that was opening my eyes to, this is part of the industry. This is part of what you will do to work towards where you want to go. Is yeah. this something you want to do? And I was all about it. It was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, and that you talked about sacrifices earlier. Yeah, yeah. And those were kind of the sacrifices I made. Cause and a, lot, and of a lot of times they don't seem like sacrifices because you're like, well, this is just awesome. I'm just doing what I want to do. I, I need help tearing down. Sure, whatever, as long mm -hmm. as we get to play. Yeah, and people as long always as we say, get to play. When, when I'm <laughs> hauling in drum cases, they're like, man, don't you wish you like picked a different instrument? I'm like, no, because when I get these drums set up, I get to play them. <laughs> exactly. They're mine and I get to play them. I started analyzing all these tunes that I started playing in these clubs and bars and going, 
why are these songs the way they were? So I eventually started trying to cop them note for note. Mm -hmm. And what I'd figure out is um, by learning them note for note and then doing a couple of things within those that might be something I would have done if I had been the drummer recording that song, I found a healthy balance. I think that's great. I think it's very important that, you know, because you have a little voice. bit of your personality yeah. in there mm-hmm. and then you have the main structure of right. the drummer's personality that created the song part. Right. And I still do do that today. I've done that sure. with Keith Anderson. I've done that with Travis Tritt. I've done that with Montgomery Gentry because most of the drummers parts that I'm copying, I have great admiration for Greg right. Morrow and <laughs> Shannon Forrest and yeah. Uh, Chad Cromwell, Those they're all A-list, A-list guys, <laughs> and so, and or Eddie Bears, Lonnie Wilson, all those guys, I I have a lot of respect for, yeah. and so, I will learn them as much as I can, note for note, to the best of my ability, but I'll also put something in there a little bit that maybe I would have done. You know, and, and, and how does Montgomery Gentry do they do they want they're very you to play? open to that. Okay. They, they and that's a great question for all the other drummers out out there listening. There, um, there's two ways that can be approached. There's artists that really like the record for verbatim, note right. for note, they're comfortable with that, or and they think are, that's the only way it should be played. And there are artists that will give you some liberties. Not total liberty, not total liberties. Yeah. You know, not like totally change the whole strong song structure via right. drum part, but right. keep the the common elements within that part mm-hmm. there and minutely change mm-hmm. certain things. Right. Or it could be a music director of the artist that'll change a section of the song that might not have been on the recording, right. and you have to create from that moment and create something that works that. Is complementary to the the drum part of the song, right? So, um, with you know learning all of that and playing high school band and going to going to hang with Randy Sanderbeck and studying more and more with Skip, um, I kind of felt like you know music's where I'm going to go. Yeah. And so you asked, did I play drum corps? No, I did not because the day I graduated high school, I went on the road with the band. Oh, okay. So I couldn't do it that summer. Yeah. I was I was playing five nights a week. We were playing regionally. We were playing uh, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, uh, some in Alabama, down to Florida, uh, kind of southeast regional area. Gotcha. And that was another introduction to the music industry because oh, travel. there was a small equipment truck there was a small Winnebago um, there was no techs at all mm-hmm. you had to load your gear you had to drive to the city you had to unload the lights unload mm-hmm. the PA set it up play four one hour sets pack it all back up and drive in the middle of the night not in the day because the artist I worked for at the time it was not a signed artist he was trying to become a signed artist but he had worked with signed artists he was off on his own trying to do his own thing okay and so you know budgets were limited and things of that nature and everything fell on our shoulders and that was really the introduction of the music industry well there you go and that that will kudos to you. the people that go out there and do that on a 
oh. nightly basis because that takes a lot of will, drive, and determination. That will age you fast. Yes, and actually, that's what made me go to school because okay. <laughs> I went on the road and I was making, you know, for that time that was late eighties, early late '80s. Yeah, I was not making a lot of money, hmm. and I was kind of going, going. I probably need to get out of this area because I've played most of the clubs, if not all, in mm -hmm. that area. Mm -hmm. And I need to go somewhere else and try to get in another music community to blossom and grow even more. So while being on the road with this band, I took a year off between high school and college and didn't go to college and, and, and tried this for a year. And, and it made me realize okay, I need to make some changes. Right. And Did you end up going to I ended up going school? to school at UT in Knoxville. The yeah. reason was because, not ETSU, because my brother had recommended me to check out the jazz studies program there. And my mindset was, if I'm going to do music, I've done symphonic i've done drum corps i've done mark you, you know the 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 typical things in junior and high school right. and high school band done sure. all state band and i want to study something i've never studied before which is jazz mm -hmm. I, I wasn't grown up on it mm -hmm. i didn't hear a lot of it as a kid my grandfather played a lot of it okay. when i was young and i didn't recognize some of the tunes and because i didn't sure. know them sure and so for me, though, I was discouraged at that time from music. And this is one of these pitfalls in life mm. or crossroads. I don't know if it's a pitfall. It's more of a crossroads. I enrolled as a pre-med student because I was, I was burnt out, basically. I was burnt out with the, the traveling, with, yeah, the, yeah. with the, the hard work, other than just playing. Yeah. And I was like, maybe because I, a lot of my friends in school were, were, were going on to become engineers or doctors or something in the science or math field. And right. that's kind of where my strong suits were, too. And um, so I enrolled and took basic chemistry and biology my first semester at UT. Hated it. Mm. I was like, I'll never forget it. I was in biology lab looking at amoeba through a microscope that I'd done four years prior in freshman biology in high school. And I was like, I don't know if I can do 12 years of this and the rest of my life of this. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> so I put my microscope up, and that same day I walked halfway across campus to the music building. Yeah. And I went in, and I met the drum instructor, and I said, Hi, my name's William Ellis. I would like to audition for a scholarship. Yeah. And he's like, what? I said, yeah, can I play for you? And I played some drum set, and he saw I was I could play. I was proficient. Yeah. I couldn't swing very well at that time because that was not my background. Right. And that's why I was going to him. Yeah. And then he got me on marimba, and I could read okay. And I, marimba wasn't my strong suit. I got better at it through school. But my primary but he saw was, something in you he that saw like, that okay. i'd had experience and i'd played clubs and he could right. tell i could play grooves and, and was this in the middle of the year did you this start was up? like uh this was about two months after i started my first semester of college okay oh so, so early on so did you just start then did you i you finished that semester as a pre-med major and the next semester after that audition with him yeah I was able to 
get a small little scholarship. Nice. And I enrolled in the jazz studies program the, the following semester. And from that moment on, it was, I've got to learn something that I don't know anything about. Yeah. And it was jazz. Yeah. And I had heard a lot of fusion before that. Like a, right. I'd heard Dave Weckl with the electric band. But you're talking bebop and... and I'm talking about, yeah, hard swinging stuff mm-hmm. that I didn't have under my belt at all. Yeah. At all. Yeah. At all. I mean, I was coming from more of a bashing rock, uh, kind of pocket kind of drummer. And... and uh, Did you find it there? The I did find it. I found it a lot because there were great players around. And then I had a great teacher, by the way, and his name is Keith Brown. So I just dove in full force, and I practiced constantly, constantly. Yeah. And uh, pretty much lived on campus, you know, just living in a practice room and trying to figure out, you know, why does this feel good against this? And and, uh, when I play this, what am I doing with my hand? You know, yeah. just certain different things. You know, is my hands laid over? Do I need to play more French grip to be more relaxed? Mm-hmm. Because I came from a background with Skip, kind of the approach in the 80s per uh, Spirit of Atlanta style of drum and bugle chord was a real hard Gladstone downstroke controlled bounce, mm-hmm. which I which is kind of the way I played. I muscled everything in. I didn't let the sticks bounce much from the yeah. the surface. And that's kind of the way he taught because that's kind of what chorus were doing back in the day. Now they're using more arm. They're using more fingers. Mm-hmm. They're using a lot mm-hmm. lot of different techniques now. Mm-hmm. And certain chorus would play that way, but there were other chorus that played with arm and stuff. But primarily during that time period, there was a lot of chorus playing that real boom, hard downstroke, well, Gladstone. Method, and, and, and so so you're you're kind of not undoing that, but augmenting the uh, power that you learned early on with more technique, more subtle technique to be able to get speed and finesse. How does all that apply to what you're doing now? You're a professional drummer now. This is what you do for a living. Mm-hmm. We can all spend the rest of our lives in the practice room and do that, but to make a living, to do what you're doing. Mm-hmm. How do you put all the pieces together? Um, there's going to be times I can only imagine on a gig like Montgomery Gentry, there's power that's necessary. Mm-hmm. You've got, you're pulling from the 16-year-old William Ellis to, to play that song, mm-hmm. you know. But you also need the finesse to, for the session or for another song or another artist. And that's a great question. And through college, yeah. I gained a lot more finesse by the teacher I studied with, and by changing my grip a little bit, learning to play French, learning mm-hmm. to play more relaxed, learning to play Muller, learning to play with more arm. I just still don't play with a lot of arm. I never have. It's just not been my kind of style. And I can do it yeah. on a drum, and if I have to play something real hard, I will use my arms. But I've been, at a very young age, I've just been kind of this controlled inside keep stuff down kind of player i was that was beating my head marching but yeah. getting to your point my college instructor opened me up and opened me more opened up more the possibilities of molar and letting the stick bounce off of yeah. things the mm-hmm. joe morello kind of philosophy mm. where i was trying to 
work so much from my wrist and my arms and not let the stick bounce. Mm -hmm. I really paid attention to that mm -hmm. and started working, and it helped my feel. It helped my finesse. It helped everything. Mm -hmm. So if there's anything I can tell other drummers, young, old, intermediate, right. you know, great drummers, or just starting, it's... Work on some finesse things. Play some jazz. Play some brushes. Play some things like that because it only enhances your hard rock drumming. Reach, it reach only, for it. Get out. It's it only enhances your, your touches, and, and your touch will become better. It'll be, mm -hmm. become more refined, and mm -hmm. and not that mine's this incredible touch like Peter Erskine's. He's got a beautiful touch. That that's something that's God given to me. He worked on it, but I mean, he's been given a beautiful way to hit a drum and a cymbal, yeah, yeah. and that just to me came to him. But work on that stuff as much as you can because it will help every facet of your drumming and your playing and your musicality. I bet it's a healthier way of playing, and I think that type of finesse and proper technique will sustain you over time. And let things bounce. It's let like the stick do the when work. I I, yeah. I teach lessons from now. I, I mean, every now and then, not a lot, but when I do have a student compared to the way I was taught to the compare compared to the way I teach now it's it's almost night and day because I want them to first of all get a good grip on the stick of the right technique not a hard grip to squeeze where you're closing your hand up but get a good grip on the stick and try to get the stick to move up and down mm -hmm. either from your fulcrum or wrapping your three fingers around the stick underneath and just try to get it up and down and I give the kid the analogy of do you play basketball mm -hmm, right do you bounce a basketball mm -hmm. notice how when you bounce the basketball your hand kind of comes up and the ba basketball comes up to your hand mm -hmm. that's what you want the stick to do off the drum head i think it was on the sabian website it talked about um one of your favorite artists miles Davis and I'm thinking, cool country drummer, or drummer in Nashville, mm -hmm. playing with Montgomery Gentry, a quote unquote country artist. See the picture, double bass kit, Miles Davis, Nefertiti. What? What? This is cool. This yeah. is great. Well, so that so my point is that had to make such an impression. It on did. You. It was a huge Learning impression. Jazz. It was a huge impression because number one, it was music that I was very unfamiliar, very unfamiliar with, and I started to fall in love with it. We're talking early '90s here, so I turned off rock radio. I turned off Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots. I got mm -hmm. into them later, after they were popular, but at the time period, I was around so many people that were so immersed in learning jazz that yeah. I was, was kind of programmed or conditioned for me to do the same. Yeah. And in doing that, it kind of came full circle again. My teacher, Keith Brown there, started turning me on to records. Like I got turned on as a kid to rock records. Mm -hmm. But this time it was jazz records. Yeah. Hard swing and bop stuff like Art Blakey and the Jazz Messenger. Awesome. Uh, Philly Joe Jones with the first Miles Fame Quintet with Coltrane and Jimmy Garrison, Bill Evans and yes. and Miles and mm -hmm. and that kind of swinging and even before that you know Gene Krupa big band stuff mm -hmm. and and the whole 
lineage of it was always, if you like a certain drummer, go back and see who they liked right. and who they, right. who they admired and who they pretty much tried to develop their style after. Sure. You know, and so it, it would it would be like, okay, I love Tony Williams, I love El, Elvin Jones, I love Jack DeJanette. Who did they listen to before? Oh, they listened to Philly Joe Jones. They listened to Art Blakey. They listened to, you know, it's this big hodgepodge of your environment growing up and what you listen to and yeah, and who right. turn who you meet and turn you on to different musical styles and what you actually gravitate towards because that's what you like. Yeah. And... My primary purpose from going f- for going to school was I didn't know how to play jazz. Yeah. I and to me, you go to school to learn something. So I was like, I'm going to school to get a performance degree in a in a genre of music I have no knowledge about. So I totally immersed myself. That's pretty bold, it. but that, that that's yeah. that's cool. But you did it. I did it. And, and, and but you were a year out of school mm-hmm. when you thought you were going to find a place to go and. Well, during studying in Knoxville, I played with a lot of people there. Uh, Donald Brown, uh, jazz piano teacher at UT, who played with Art Blakey. He played with Freddie Hubbard. Uh, Played with the guitar instructor there, Mark Bowling. Played in the big band there run by Billy Scarlett. God rest his soul. Beautiful Mm man. Um, Don Huff, great trombone player and studio orchestra. Rusty Holloway was a great mentor of mine, Mm -hmm. the bass instructor there. And all these guys would take students under their wings, whether it be in jazz improv classes or jazz ensembles, and they would give you, they, first of all, you could play with them, and then they would give you great advice on everything musically, like you're playing the rod cymbal too much. Hey, don't play the, hey, don't play the hi-hat on two and four. Play broken time with the hi-hat. Mm, you know, yeah. play more like Roy Haynes on the cymbal. Don't just play ding, 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 ding all the time. Don't be a Philly Joe guy. Break it up more. Right. Play more semi-broken stuff like ding, 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 You know, play more open, broken kind of free-flowing rhythms, and that's the genre of jazz that I really fell in love with. Mm-hmm. And which was the Tony stuff and the Jack D and the Elvin, because you know Elvin was to me. I mean, that was forced to be reckoned with behind a drum set. I got to meet him and see him play live, and it was just, it was so spiritual. Yeah. I mean, when I hugged him, he had an eagle shirt on, and when I heard, when I hugged him, when I met him, <laughs> there was something very magical about that man. I don't know what it is, what it was. But when I met him, shook his hand, gave him a hug, he gave me a hug, I was like, that was that was something spiritual. I had a very similar experience with him as yes. well. That's, yes. Yeah, it's amazing. It was something spiritual about Elvin he that, is, that, he that is. a lot of people he's a heavy, didn't have or may never have. He's a heavy dude, man. Yeah. That's crazy. And so listening to those kind of players, and not that I didn't listen to Jimmy Cobb or Art Blakey or Buddy Rich or... Philly Joe Jones or, or Joe Chambers. I can keep mm-hmm. going down the list. There's several of them. Gene Krupa, Louis Belson, uh, Mel Lewis. Oh, we only have an hour. Though. I know. <laughs> so I'm just giving the listeners, right. go check these drummers out because oh, yeah. they're all great in their own right and they all do things well and you can pick up things from them. Sure. Just like any rock drummer you can yeah. or any Latin or, or a fusion drummer. But what I started falling in love with, and I was playing a lot with the jazz 
bass teacher there, Rusty, and another piano player by the name of Bill Swan, and we had a little jazz trio together. Mm-hmm. And we were we were doing things in kind of a abnormal kind of way, a, a, a more, quote, fresh, unquote, for a lack of a better term, approach where I wasn't just going ding, ding, a ding, and two and four on the hi-hat. Okay. He was one of the guys that opened that playing up for me to play like a Roy Haynes or a Tony, at the best of my ability. I'm not comparing myself by, uh, right, to them but, by any means. But, but using but, that as a... As a Basis. A platform, right. yeah. Use okay. that as a as a, a platform and launch from that, and try to give that vibe out. And you know, don't play the hi hat sometimes. Just play simple, and don't you know, don't play two and four, or play on the hi hat, but don't just play ding ding a ding and open it up on two and four. Yeah. So you get the standard jazz rhythm. Break it up. Make right. things flow. And from that, I learned a lot. And so that album, Nefertiti. If you hear Tony play on all those 60s records, whether it's Miles Smiles, Circles, uh, Four and More, My Funny Valentine, Nefertiti, all those records, check them out. ESP is another favorite of mine. Um, Because what Tony was doing, he was changing jazz drumming in the 60s on those records. He was playing that semi-broken time. He was using the hi-hat as another voice rather than just a timekeeping voice. Yes. It became another vocal instrument on the drum set that he used mm-hmm. and another source to hit and create rhythms and create colors and, yeah. and things to do. And so Tony Williams really, I mean, Elvin was before him, but Elvin and Tony really pushed that envelope in those six in the '60s, and created that kind of semi-broken or avant-garde kind of jazz right. drumming. He very and, and the thing that's amazing about Tony is that he he continued to develop his sound throughout his life. He was totally different in the end than and he was if you close, as a kid. He was he was very much so. And and to somebody that doesn't know Tony, you could with their eyes closed say, okay, who's this and who's this? Are they two different players? And you'd be like, I mean, not just based on the era of the recording, but but really much so uh, the way his, his drums were tuned, the way he was hitting. Uh, it, was, it was almost, you know, to go from bebop to fusion-y kind of thing, but uh, to a rock thing. It and was it, it very did, much rock. It, yeah. it very much so, and it doesn't surprise me when you hear a rock drummer's sight Tony as an influence, whether it's Cindy Blackman, Santana, or somebody else. You're like, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Oh, yeah, because between that era of late 60s and he formed Tony Williams' lifetime, he's really, that trio is really credited for creating fusion music. Miles was on the path doing it because he's already kind of doing it with Miles. Because if you listen to the record Phileas Day, Kilimanjaro, Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock's playing, um, he's playing a Rhodes on it. And before that, it was all acoustic piano. Mm. So things were going more electric in the late 60s, and Miles was really getting into Sly and the Family Stone, Jimi Hendrix. He was getting into all these rock things, and that's why Bitches Brew became what it was. And Tony left, and he started... Many cite that record, Bitches Brew, as like the the fusion fusion record. But actually, Tony is really credited for creating it with... uh, With Lifetime? With Tony Williams' Lifetime and the Emergency record. And that's just a Hammond organ and him playing drums and John McLaughlin. It's Larry Young, John McLaughlin, and Tony Williams. And it's a way, way out there record, yeah. almost avant-garde jazz. So yeah. if you pick it up and you you Be play prepared. it one time, <laughs> and you don't like it, 
play it again because it's going to be so different like to it, your ears. Again. Yeah, it again. it's going to be different. When did Holdsworth play with life? Didn't Holdsworth play with life? Well, that's that's where I was going with this. It it was pretty much after Tony. He kind of quit playing drums for a while in the early mid seventies. And so when he came back and re- reformed his Lifetime outfit, it was kind of like Tony Williams' Lifetime 2. I see. He added Alan Pasqua. And he added um, Alan Holdsworth. And that's where the more fusion rock kind of tunes came, like Red Alert, mm-hmm. Mr. Spock. Yeah. Um, and you can hear that big rock influence yeah. in Tony's drumming. From that late 60s, the way he played, and even in the early to mid-60s when he was playing with Jackie McLean and he first started with Miles, he was, Miles, he was 16, 17. He did not play that way mm-hmm. when he got older. And once yeah. he heard all this rock come through in the early mid-70s, I'm sure he was kind of like, that's, that's the wave of the future. And a, and a lot of the old jazz cats, the way they thought was, they were trendsetters. They wanted to change and push onward and, and make the music propel and go forward, you know. And so with him, I'm sure he's like, man, drumming now these days is bigger, it's louder, it's heavier. Of course, Tony never played really light. We all know that. He was a yeah, loud drummer. Yeah, right. And uh, so it just started, I think just all the musical influences that were happening happening during that time period was influencing him as well. And it was driving him towards a new kind of sound, a new kind of approach for him. And I think that probably gave him new life to play because, he, let's face it, he was a child prodigy. I mean, he was right. so far advanced for, he was Alan Dawson's first student. He was so far advanced in front of so many drummers of his time. Right, was, but 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 to go from the '60s into mm-hmm. the late '60s, '70s, that fusion era when jazz was changing, he kind of like finished one era and started another, and with Very a different like sound, a different touch, yeah. played bigger drums, everything. Yes, true. Moved to Nashville in August of '95. In two and a half weeks, I had a house gig. Didn't know anybody, didn't write any emails, didn't write let. Of course, email was just beginning then. Yeah. I didn't write letters, didn't call people. I haphazardly ran into somebody that I knew in a club that had a house gig. Oh, wow. Going out and just beating the bushes, bushes and trying to meet people in town. Sure. So I ended up playing for about nine months at Bourbon Street Blues and Boogie Bar, yeah. and I had the opportunity to have a lot of people. Santos, you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Dave Santos came in because well, he was touring with Billy Joel. Met him and got to jam with Bill Monroe. And then next weekend it was Slash. Next weekend yeah. it was Elvin Bishop. Next who week, was Who was it you were with? It was a band called Blue Zone. And okay. the trumpet player and the lead singer were married at the time. They had worked with the Rolling Stones. And the trumpet player was in a horn band out of New York City called Uptown Horns and they had done records for Jay Giles and James Brown and things of that nature and there were other prominent members in that band. Dave Ennis was the keyboard player. He was in Restless Heart. He's now still with Restless Heart. Okay. But anyway, that band ended up, you know, becoming uh, it was kind of the house band during that time period for Bourbon Street Blues and Boogie Bar and we made a spec record. It just never went anywhere but it was a fun band and it was kind of my Welcome to Nashville moment. Yeah. Even though I moved to town, I kind of had a different mindset when I moved to town. I played a lot of clubs. 
I kind of wanted to stay in town. I wasn't really playing the country stuff. Mm-hmm. I was playing blues, R&B. I was playing casual jazz gigs. I was playing corporate gigs with horn bands mm-hmm. uh, later on after I moved to town. And then in 97, I moved to Chicago on a recommendation from a sax player friend of mine and got a blues gig with a guy out of Chicago. And I toured Europe, made a record in Paris, France, and it ended up becoming a, nominated for the W.C. Handy Award, Blues Album of the Year. Wow. With Jimmy Johnson is the artist name. It's not the race car driver nor the football coach or the <laughs> guitar player that plays on sessions at Muscle Shoals. Yeah. But, uh, nor the lawn care specialist, uh, yeah. nor the plumber. Yeah, uh, exactly. Nor the... It's a very popular yeah, a very name popular there. Name. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it was a great experience. My first time ever going to Europe. And uh, I moved up there for a short time period. Had that great musical scene, but oh, I, yeah. but my mom, uh, my mom became a widow, and she kind of wanted me to be closer. She was still living in Georgia, and I said, "Well, I'll just move back to Nashville." So I moved back to Nashville, and at that moment, I got a day job, and I was like, "I want to stay in town, and I want to start playing the things that people play in this town." Mm, okay. Which is not people play jazz in this town. They play R and B. They play everything here. Yeah, of course. But but we know what we're talking about when sure. you know what I'm talking about when I mention it. It's country or rock. Yeah. So I had to do a mind shift. It's mm-hmm. like okay, rather than playing what you did in school and all this stuff, it's kind of go back to your roots. What you yeah, did when you were 15, yeah. 16, 17, playing these clubs, learning these top 40 songs, learning these pop country songs, or learning these late 90s country songs at the time, yeah. learning the material of the genre in the city where it's popular. Yeah. So I started de- delving into that more at that time period and started playing downtown. Uh, not so much the Broadway scene, even though I was playing on Broadway. I was playing with this guy named Tom Ellis, no relation. He's from mm-hmm. Michigan. And we would play every Saturday night, his original and some covers, at a place that's no longer in existence, uh, Gibson Guitar Gallery and Cafe. Oh, I thought it was the Electric Banana. Yeah, could have been that too. Okay, no, no. <laughs> the Spinal Tap. So, yeah, it could have been. It's not there anymore. <laughs> it seemed like that it's for us then at the yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> Please excuse me. Um, but... I was playing there every Saturday night, working a day job, and just trying to reconnect with people in town. And uh, I had not done a major touring act mm-hmm. out of Nashville at that time. I'd done weekend warrior stuff for some people and done some subbing. But um, so fast forward from '98 till about starting in 2000, um, I got a different day job. These were nine to fives. These were okay. these were, were working, working eight to fives. Okay. Holy moly. And so my time was limited musically. First time in my life yeah. that that I can't, came to that point to where I'm actually doing something other than playing drums and doing music. Yeah, and it was a real eye opener. It's kind of like that moment when I went to uh, enroll in pre med in school and go, I want to totally change my life. Yeah. And then it's that moment where you go. Maybe I don't want to change my life. Oh, but Maybe sometimes like those it. experiences, they're like, okay, I'm ready to work. I'm ready to do this. something different because I was yeah. a little bit burnt too then as well. And But it opened my mind and my eyes up to I really know what I love to do. Even yeah. though I've done these other things, I yeah. really know what I enjoy and what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So I just started beating the butches and going out almost nightly and – 
and going to jam sessions or going to songwriter nights or going to see people play that were doing well on the scene and I started picking up sessions and I started doing more and more session work and uh, around 2002 a jazz bass player uh, jazz student that I went to school with in Knoxville moved to town excellent bass player and he could play everything besides jazz too but that's what he went and studied upright and electric and, mm-hmm. and studied classical and did arco and did everything but he moved to town and got hooked up with uh uh the lead singer of blue merle and they were doing some demos at the time what's his name luke reynolds the oh. bass player's name was jason oedel or is jason oedel okay and he called me one day and and goes hey what you i'm i'm hooked up with these guys we're kind of doing a something something different mm-hmm. and we're not ready for drums yet but if we get to that point would you be interested and i said it all sounds great i said call me when you're at that point yeah because right now you're just feeling it out and you're trying to figure out what the journey is and i get that sure so when you come to that crossroads give me a call sure. and i want to hear what you're doing yeah so that that day came and they presented me with some music, and I totally fell in love with the music. Cool. All the while, I was starting to do more and more session work. Okay. So, <laughs> Dilemma started coming into play. Do I want to stay in town? Yeah. Or do I want to go on the road uh-huh. and give this band a go? Right. Because I had taken the last three years and kind of built my session accounts up, per se. Um. They they weren't like, you know, triple scale, uh, but a, three days, yeah. uh, three sessions a day like the A list players were doing. But I was I was climbing the ladder. Let's just say that. Sure. And through all of that, I was gaining more and more sessions. And so they come to me in the fall, or early, well, about this time in, in 2002. Hey man, you dig the music? We really kind of want to make you a permanent member of the band and. Um, would you be interested? Mm-hmm. So at that moment, I had to think, okay, I'm this age, I may never get an opportunity to be in a band and get signed by a major label, or I can stay in town and just pursue being a session player. Yeah, that's, yeah. Totally. It was hard. It was sure. hard, and I chose the band. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was great experience. I've, I had a lot of wonderful experiences. It just didn't work out via... You know, label head change, managerial changes, so a lot of things sense. that happened. But I learned yeah. more about the music business in those three years than I ever did going to school. That three years the from 2002 school. to early 06 yeah. taught me a lot about contracts, uh, percentages, what's broken up, who gets what, what where does this go, why you incorporate yourself mm-hmm. why you know what i'm saying yeah. all these business things that i was very green to mm-hmm. and so it opened my eyes up to a lot of that so that was great experience that band did a lot of great things we made an album on island def jam we had uh stephen harris who was pretty much steve lily white's protege back in the day as his engineer he worked with u2 and oh, wow. worked on dave matthews band mm-hmm. records and and so 
um, it was a great experience. We toured with Counting Crows. We toured with Train. We toured with Dave Matthews. We did Bonnaroo. We did Lollapalooza. We did Farm Aid with Willie Nelson. Sweet. So, I mean, we, I did a lot of cool things in that band. Fast forward to now, what's going on now is I've been with Montgomery Gentry for five and a half years, um, since 2010, and and just... I've written some things. I've produced a couple of people. I've, I've uh, continued to do sessions, and just rounding out that pie, like we were talking about before the interview started. Like, you know, I'm doing this, but what else can I do to Stay, fulfill that yeah. that that circle as a whole? Well, I it's it, there's so many reasons to do that: to stay busy, to stay connected. Um, you're earning a living by doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you never know when one of those gigs is going to go away, and you want to have other things, other irons in the fire mm-hmm. to keep that together. And I've had some success as of you know the last few years of playing on some things there you know that that have done some some cool things. Like uh, there's a there's a pop girl named Ashlyn Vince that's had top thirty singles on Billboard pop charts. That's not, cool. Not Billboard country. I'm talking yeah. Billboard pop. And, and things of that nature that a lot of people might not know that about me, but I've, I've been here a long time, and I know mm-hmm. a lot of people, and and I just tell anybody that if they move here tomorrow, you, my path may be what you do. It may not be what you do. But you can take elements from each person's path and kind right. of make them your own. And yeah. the best thing to do is meet as many people as you yeah. can. And some of those things in, in the in the path that you the journey that you're on, you have control. Some of them you don't have control. Exactly. But but it's it's taking learning how to take things in stride and learning how to take advantage of certain situations and and handling things in a way that benefits you as you move through it. Exactly. And this has happened to me time and time again. I've met someone at a show, we exchange numbers, I text them, or they text me, hey, keep in touch. Hey, he may be a keyboard player, or he may be a guitar player. He may he may lead a lot of sessions. Yeah. And say, hey, man, if you ever need a drummer, keep me in mind. Yeah. It's as simple as that. It may not come in a month or two or three mm-hmm. or even a year or two or three. Mm-hmm. Remember, I've been here 20 years. <laughs> it may come five years down the road. But you don't know. You don't know. Right. And because you've stayed in contact with that person, not wearing them out, but like once a month, hey, man, what's up? How you been? How's the kids? What's going on? You know? Let's talk about the Nashville Drummer Jam. Yes. This is the seventh one coming up in December. Have you done the ones before? Uh, I've done uh, all of them except the Stuart Copeland. And uh, what I like about the NDJ stuff, the Nashville Drummer's Jam, is... It's a camaraderie of great drummers in town. Yeah. Number two, it gives back to great causes. Mm-hmm. And this is all about giving back to the community and having a camaraderie of guys get together and play some great music by a favorite drummer of all of ours and just have a good time. Yeah. So it's a really cool, cool thing. It happens, you know, once or twice a year. Per people's schedules, I think it's a semi-annual thing now. We do like maybe two a year. Right, right. So, um, 
I mean, Jerry Gaskill, Jeff Picaro, John Bonham. And now there is a surprise one. That's I'm right. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that at the moment. But it's a fabulous night of music. It's a fabulous night to come out and see some of... Over 100% goes to charity is the, is the main point. It's, it's for, sure. for a great cause. Great hang. It, it's a great hang and great musicians and great music. And you will thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah. I promise you. Yeah. Thanks, man for sitting down and talking to me. Thank you for yeah. having me. It's truly yeah. an honor to be here. Yeah. And I'm glad that we have connected. Yeah, and um, I appreciate the opportunity. Sure. So thank I'm you looking very much. forward to uh, hearing you uh, uh, in December. Okay. Man, it's going to be great. Well, thank you now, very much. William, man, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Matt. It, have appreciate a great it. evening. Thanks. Thanks, William. Appreciate that, man. Um, we didn't know each other very well before this. Um, but the podcasts are always a great way for me to meet new people in town, new drummers, and learn so much about their story. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed it as, as much as I did. Another heartfelt thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical help making this podcast sound the way it is and making it uh, that much better. So thanks again, Mike, for your help. Getting feedback from you guys is always great. I've got one on Twitter from Brian Hudson. Brian Hudson Drums, actually a great drummer I had a chance to work with uh, close to Atlanta. Uh, check him out. Uh, but he writes on our Twitter account, always enjoy discovering new drummers like Jamin Jethro from Working Drummer Podcast. Thanks, Matt. He's talking about uh, the Grateful Dead band that Jamie Rogan plays drums with here in Nashville. And uh, I'm glad that he made that connection. Jamie was one of our interviewees earlier this year. Again, uh, the Nashville Drummers Jam, December 14th. We're very excited to be participating in that event. Uh, a big announcement about who the tribute is going to be this year. It's happening very, very soon. Just got off the phone with David Parks. So um, keep an ear out for that. There's going to be a big video announcement. But otherwise, we'll see you at the show, and um, we'll, we're going to give you as much information as we can about that as it comes along. So again, thanks for listening, everybody. Appreciate it, and hope to see you around. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.